turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Our text this morning is Acts 21, 17 through 26. But I'm actually going to begin reading a few verses earlier here to give us some context at verse 15. If you would please give attention to the reading of the infallible, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God. Acts, chapter 21, beginning at 15. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what, you have been to- in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it in our lives. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, that you would make your word real to us, that it would affect us, that it would change us, that it would draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in the name above all names, the only name under heaven by which we may be saved, Jesus Christ. Amen. America is a unique nation. I think perhaps unique in all of the history of the world. The only sense in which America becomes a bit less unique is as since the founding of America, other nations have followed in our path. 
in terms of setting up a representative democracy in which the people have rights. It's hard to think of this hundreds of years later, but the Bill of Rights shook the world that ordinary citizens could claim against the government rights that could not be taken or changed from them. This is unique and marvelous. And I thank the Lord for our government. But at the same time, it presents a real challenge for the church. Because the American church is made up of, well, Americans. And so we take this concept of the Bill of Rights and our standing before authority and we bring it back into the church. We bring it before even the Lord himself. And the temptation for us is to take our fist and to shake it at society, to shake it at the church, to even shake it at God and say, I've got my rights. When in reality, the Christian life is one of being more and more like Jesus, of giving up rights, of following the path of suffering, of laying down our lives for others, so that the reign of King Jesus might be seen throughout all lands. And so this morning we're going to look at a text that is a bit odd. There are some difficulties here. But in the main we will see that the Apostle Paul is showing us that for the Christian, there are times when even when we have rights, for the benefit of others and the gospel, it is good and proper to lay them aside, that the gospel might go forward unhindered. And so what I would like us to see is Paul's, the challenge to Paul, how Paul deals with the difficulties of his sacrifice, of suspicion against him. And he responds with service to those who would limit his rights. Sacrifice, suspicion, and service. Well, let's begin then by looking at the sacrifice that Paul has made. Again, this text doesn't come to us out of the air. It comes in a context. We've been seeing this build up for some time. This is the end of a long journey. It seems like Luke has been talking forever about Paul wanting to get to Jerusalem. Isn't it? For at least now, two and a half chapters, Paul keeps reminding us over and over again through Luke that he's got to get to Jerusalem. And finally now, he arrives. And this is a very significant scene. This is important to Luke, and hence, we know, is important to the Holy Spirit. Because from this point on, through chapter 23, two and a half chapters... Luke is going to deal with 12 days in the life of Paul. After that, he will cover about the same amount of Bible in two years of chronological time for Paul. So there is a sense in which there is a great deal happening here. There is a great build-up to coming to Jerusalem. Paul and his party arrive. You remember that he is traveling with companions. And they arrive at the house of a man named Nason. Yes, the M there is silent, like in mnemonic device. He is an old believer. And by that, I think it, it does not just refer to his age, but he has been in the church since the beginning. 
He is a native of Cyprus. And so Paul comes into Jerusalem. He's finally arrived. And you can almost imagine the buildup and the joy that he has. He's, he's talking to Nason. Perhaps Nason was friends with Barnabas, another man from Cyprus. Perhaps Paul and Nason had a long conversation about church planting and what it was like to plant churches and what to do. But we do know that this was a time of joy. As Luke tells us, they came to Jerusalem and they were received gladly by the brothers. I think this is kind of an impromptu welcoming party. You can almost imagine that word came as Paul was coming. Nason sent out the equivalent of postcards or ancient emails. And he said, come down to my house. Let's welcome Paul. We'll eat. We'll talk. It'll be a great time. You've had those kind of gatherings, haven't you? They pick up your whole week. And so Paul comes and he is now finally here in Jerusalem. He's also here with representatives from various Gentile churches. Let's not forget that in chapter 20, verse 4, we see that there are eight men listed from Berea and from Thessalonica and from Derby. Timothy is here. From the Asians, from Asia Minor, there are fellowshippers. And we think at least perhaps there's one other person who's here, that is Titus. Titus representing the city of Corinth. You remember we discussed this. So Paul is here with eight or nine of his closest companions leading men in the church. Make a note of that. Leading men in the church, Paul and Timothy and Titus, coming here on a mission to deliver relief for Jerusalem. It's also important, I think, to note that both Timothy and Titus are here. You recall that Timothy was circumcised. And Titus was not. Because Paul was okay with circumcision for cultural reasons. To be a Jew to the Jews. But he was not okay with circumcising Titus because some kind of insurance against salvation. All of them are here now in Jerusalem. And this is the end of a long project. Paul and Barnabas started this collection several years ago. Paul got an idea from a previous collection that what he would do is collect up funds from all of the Gentile churches and he would bring them to Jerusalem. This was years in the making. Paul mentions it in both 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and in the, the epistle to Romans. This is a really big deal. That's why I'm making so much of it. Why? We take up collections, don't we? We send out emails, there's been a tornado in Alabama, let's take up a collection. Or we say there is a ministerial relief fund that we need and we put an insert in the bulletin and we take up a collection. What's so big about this collection? Why does Paul make it, it seems, the focus of his ministry for several years? I think it's because the collection is about the church and unity in the church and love for the church. You see, Paul had a brainstorm, I think. Paul was smart enough to look around and notice that although there were Jewish Christians, Christians who were Jewish by background, and there were Gentile Christians in the same church, 
All you had to do was look around and see that they didn't eat together. They didn't invite each other over to their houses. There was suspicion. They had to write formal letters back and forth. They had to send ambassadors one to another. Antioch to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Antioch. And Paul is trying to do something here to bring about the unity of the church. He's trying to bring about peace. This is about Paul trying to live out his theology. Because Paul will write to the Ephesians that the wall of separation between the Gentiles and the Jews has been torn down by Jesus Christ. And now Paul wants to show what that looks like. That's a challenge to us. We believe a great many things, do we not? A great many things in the Scriptures are dear to us. But do we make it our life's work to show others how that truth works in their lives and ours? This is what Paul has done. He has badgered churches for money. He's gathered together ambassadors. And they are now in Jerusalem trying to live out his theology, to follow the Spirit's prompting. This is why Paul was ready to die. Think about that. Paul was ready to die to bring this work to Jerusalem. What in the Bible are you ready to die for? What that you hold dear are you ready to lay down your life for, to suffer for the sake of Jesus? You see, Paul here knew that unity in the church was worth living and dying for. But it's not just he that sacrificed Because remember, that collection was taken up from various Gentile churches. You know what it's like to give of your heart to worthy causes. There are things that you don't do. You don't take a vacation to give. You put off some repairs on the house to give. You eat humbler food to give. You make a sacrifice to give. And that is what these churches did. But you also know what it's like to do this as a church. You see, as a church, you have to set priorities with funds. You can't just give infinitely. And so, in order to give to missionaries, in order to give to ministry, you must sacrifice other good priorities. There are things that just don't get done. They have to wait. Because others need help. And that's what these churches here in Greece, in Asia Minor, were doing. They were sacrificing themselves in order to make others a priority. They didn't just send money, though. I want to come back to our ambassador party. They sent a delegation of important people. They sent their pastors. They sent their elders. They sent their leading men. And these men were willing to go and to sacrifice. Now, I don't just mean the trip. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be the most important person in your congregation? The person who knows the Bible best. The person whom others seek advice from. The person whom others want you to pray for. And you roll into Jerusalem and everybody rolls their eyes at you. Gentile dog. Who let him in? 
What is he doing walking near the temple? Who does he think he is? And then you go and you visit the church. And instead of perhaps the warm brotherly embrace you might expect, you get a little bit of a look. Who are these guys that Paul brought with him? We don't know them. Hmm. I wonder how much they know. Could you imagine that? What a role reversal. What a humbling act to come into Jerusalem to sacrifice for the church. Well, this is the sacrifice that Paul and his companions come to. But it is not the end of their difficulties because, you see, when it just seems like the sacrifice should be over, when they are with the brothers, when they are about to deliver this wonderful gift, then suspicion begins. After being received gladly by Nason and his friends, on the following day, Paul goes in to James. And all the elders were present. Cue ominous music. Right? It just sounds formal in the Bible, doesn't it? Now, if you can imagine this, they go in and here is James. James is one of the three pillars. The last time we met James, James stood up and silenced everyone. Paul, Peter, John, Barnabas, the Judaizers. James is a man to be reckoned with. He has the respect of the entire church at Jerusalem. He is one of the three pillars. And we know now from other sections of the Bible that both Peter and John are gone off on missionary work. So James is the head honcho. And around him are all of the elders. Now, there is a a tradition that the number of elders in Jerusalem, because of the size of the church, was 70. Now, 70 is kind of a traditional round number, but let's just take that for its value. There are 70 elders and James, and they are in a very tight spot. They want to minister to Jews who want nothing to do with Gentiles. And yet, at the same time, they want to support the Gentiles. They are caught in the middle now, have you ever met someone in authority who is caught in the middle? They're nervous, aren't they? They don't know what to do. There's a tension in the air. Static electricity. All of the elders are gathered together with James, and they're here with Paul and some Gentile Christians. Now, I want you to put in your mind what this would be like. Many of you... Know the experience just of coming before a session to be interviewed for membership, where there might be two or three or five or six at most elders. And to many of you, that's very intimidating, isn't it? Sometimes I wonder, I think the children, when they come, would be more intimidated. Oftentimes, they're less intimidated than some adults. Now, imagine if you walk into a room and there are 70 somber-faced, nervous elders. This is not an easy situation to be in. It's intimidating. But at least we know Paul is here in a positive way. He's coming bringing the gift from the Gentile churches. Now, a little bit of historical instruction here. They didn't have credit cards, kids, in Paul's day. They didn't even have checkbooks. 
The only way that you could get money from one place to another was to take a big bag and to fill it with money, which was usually gold or silver. So now I want you to imagine Paul comes in with all of these leaders of the Gentile church. They walk in. They have big bags of money. They're here to save the day. They drop the bags down. Clank! And they say, here is our offering from the Gentile churches. Now what might you expect? The culmination of all of this work, the visible presentation of all this money, what might you expect to see. Kids, what does mom tell you? What do you say? You say thank you, don't you? I want you to look in your Bible. Does the word thank or the word you show up there? No, it doesn't. They come in here and I want you to imagine Paul. He's brought all these funds and he says to himself, well, let me tell them what God has done, how this money has come here. And he begins to recount. Luke says, one by one. He tells them the story of the riot in Ephesus. He tells them the story at Corinth where God converted the leader of the synagogue and then converted the replacement leader of the synagogue. He tells them the story in Athens, how he preached. He tells them the story of every place that he went And they glorify God. And again, perhaps he looks down and points at the money. And his compatriots testify. We were there. We were there in Corinth. We were there in Derby. We were there in Antioch. And there's silence. You ever had that kind of really awkward silence? You don't know what to say because someone else is supposed to say something. They're supposed to say thank you so Paul can say you're welcome. Praise the Lord. And there's this palpable silence. Well, how do they react? Paul has brought all this, all this money and he tells of all of the glorious things that God has done all over the world. Jerusalem is this tiny place and the gospel is now spread out to Judea, Samaria, Antioch, Greece. And they respond by the work to the work of God by saying, well, you know, we got a lot of converts here in Jerusalem, you know. Oh, a whole bunch of them. There's a thousand maybe here that are Jews. Can you imagine the awkwardness? And then the kicker. Oh, and all our converts, they are zealous for the law. You know it. Every single one of them. They know that law. Now, can you imagine Titus kind of shifting as he stands? Can you imagine the representatives from Derby and from Corinth and from all of these other places? Can you imagine Timothy maybe pulling at his ancient collar knowing this is not what he teaches in his church. This is not how Paul trained him. What should he do? This reaction is difficult. Put that in the context that Paul has been under suspicion from the very start. You remember that back earlier in Acts. They didn't know if they could trust him. It was only Barnabas' act that brought him into the fold. They were suspicious about the decline of Jerusalem in the church. They don't like the fact that Antioch has now outshone Jerusalem. They don't like the fact that Ephesus has a huge church. 
They don't understand why they're not the center of the universe anymore. They're suspicious about all of these Gentiles coming into the church. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think how we would react if next year the majority of the visible, wealthy, gathered church was in China or in Kenya. And Houston was a Christian backwater. Thinking about glory days. Can you imagine? There's a tension here. What can Paul do to resolve the situation? While he's thinking, they lay yet more on him. They say, you know, Paul, there is something that we do need to talk about. Perhaps then... The the group thinks, well, finally, we're going to get around to thank you. No, Paul, there's something we need to talk about. And you know what it is? It's you. You're a bit of a problem, Paul. You're a problem for us here. What? Now, can you imagine? Timothy says, what? Had they heard about the church in Ephesus? Had they heard that we had to drag Paul back from getting killed in the riot? What are they thinking? Well, you see, Paul, there's a problem. We hear rumors. There are rumors that you are telling Jews not to circumcise their children. Paul, the apostle of the living God, the church planner extraordinaire, the one called by the Holy Spirit, who if anyone ever had any rights, he did and could stand on him, and he brings this gift, and he's faced not with a thank you, but with gossip. Paul, there's gossip about you. And you need to help us deal with it. And let me tell you, we have a plan. Because you see, there's a real problem here. We hear that you are telling other people to leave Moses. The word is very strong. You are telling people to apostatize from Moses. To not circumcise. And we can't have this. And now I imagine that you could hear a pin drop. And Luke is thinking in his mind, Paul, I told you you shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. You should have listened to me. I don't know what we're going to do now. Timothy is thinking to himself, wait a minute, hold on, Um, I was circumcised, and Paul made me. Huh? Titus is thinking to himself, really? This is all you could think about? You're not impressed with how God is at work? And we can imagine the others saying to themselves what we might say, let's get out of here. I mean, come on, we brought all this money we got a lot of work to do back home. we got people that need help. we got to teach the Bible. we got to evangelize. we got to send out missionaries. We don't need to sit here and dilly-dally. And it's all up to Paul. Because, you see, what Paul can do is one of two things. Paul can say to himself, you know what? I don't need this mess. Here's your money. Talk to you later. And if Paul does that, then there is a rift forever between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, I want you to understand, everything says that Paul could do that. He's been patient. He has been kind. He has been loving. He has been falsely accused. He has every right to say, I will not stand here and be slandered. Take care of your problems yourself and go home. 
But he doesn't. Because the same thing that brought Paul to Jerusalem, the same thing that had him saying over and over again, so much so that it almost gets annoying, I've got to get to Jerusalem. That love for the church to see this work happen is the same reason that Paul stands. And so, after all of this suspicion is out in its ugliness, Paul responds in service. He first responds with patience. Now this is, I think, a real instruction to so many of us. Patience is hard, isn't it? Young people, hard to be patient, to be ready for school to be over. It's hard to be patient, I want to get to college. It's hard to be patient, I want to get out and get a job. It's hard to be patient, I want to be married. It's hard to be patient, I want to have kids. Right? Well, let me tell you, when you're 70, I don't think that lack of patience goes away. It just changes. And so Paul here is faced with a difficult decision. These men who have all but slandered him, they say, you know, so what are we to do, Paul? Now, Paul was caught in the middle. He's got friends literally behind him who are Gentiles, who are expecting him to do one thing. He's got 70 elders expecting him to do another thing. You know what this is like, don't you? Have you ever moved, maybe even from one street to another, and you have old friends, and you have new friends? You know what this is like, kids. You play basketball or baseball, and you have an opportunity, your old friends and your new friends are together, and maybe you've grown a few years, and you've changed in what you like, and your old friends see you one way, and your new friends see you another way, and you're not really sure how to act. That's where Paul is right now. He's under a lot of pressure. And he's stuck. And the point gets pressed home to him. They say, you know what? We need to do something here because the issue can't be avoided. Everyone knows you're here, Paul. There's actually uh, some of the manuscripts make it even more bold. They say, you know, we have to call an assembly. That's how important this is. It cannot be avoided. And they say, you know what? We have a plan. Now, if you're like me, when someone walks up to you and presents a problem and then in the next breath says, but you know I have a plan, you're thinking to yourself, you didn't just come up with this plan. This has been in the works for a while. I need to make sure that it doesn't snow a bit in here. Snow me under. What's the plan? Well, the plan is for Paul to take orders. Do what we say, Paul. You should do what we are going to do. And it's a plan that's driven by circumstances. Because just to tell you briefly, this time of the year, this time in Paul's life, Jerusalem is a mess. There are assassins running around killing people for being moderate Jews. The governor of Rome, the Roman governor that we will meet later, Felix, is kind of a buffoon. One of the Roman historians say that he ruled with all the instincts of a slave. You've got a bad government. You've got violence in the streets. You've got a powder keg going on. And so they respond to these circumstances. And the plan, quite frankly, is not a good plan. We will see that next week as they execute the plan, and that starts a riot. 
So it's a plan that Paul needs to submit, and it's not actually even a very good plan. So how does Paul respond to this? He listens. He's patient. And then he acts. He agrees to follow their plan, which is to take these four men and to pay for their uh, sacrifices, to buy the heifer and to buy the various animals for this Nazarite vow that they've taken. Now, Paul is not under a Nazarite vow. He doesn't believe in it. It's Old Testament. And Paul is willing to be purified. And you know what he needs to be purified for? Walking around in Gentile lands. You can imagine how popular that is with the rest of his party. That you need ritual purification for living in my house, Paul. But Paul is so concerned about the unity of the church that I think there is perhaps even a way in which we can say that Paul didn't make the best of decisions here. He was pressured. It's it's hard to know from the text whether Paul did the right thing or the wrong thing. And when you look at the commentators, they're all over the map. Because they're as confused as we are. You can see the benefit, but you can also see the problem. So he agrees to do this, but you have to also realize that this is an uncomfortable plan to execute. Paul's service is not easy service. You see, when we serve others, it is easier when it's something that we like. Isn't it? There's nothing wrong with that. If we like to cook, Making a meal for someone else is easier than serving in another way. It is far easier, those of you who know me, for me to serve by standing up here and preaching than for me to work on the grounds outside. It's just not my thing. So when we are not serving in the way in which we love and we are called to, it's difficult. And this is even more so for Paul. He has to go to the temple and take this vow. He has his companions with him and they can't go. They're not allowed in the temple. And he has to go and buy animals for a sacrifice who will be sacrificed by priests. Priests who helped to kill Jesus. Think about how hard that is to swallow. That is how much Paul loves the church. Paul loves the church so much that he follows this uncomfortable plan. At any place where he can avoid giving offense, he does so. He wants to stay out of the way of the gospel. He wants to see the gospel go forward, not just in Ephesus, not just in Antioch, but in Jerusalem. Was Paul right? This is one of these issues where I want to say to you, it's not really important to determine whether Paul was right. That's not, I think, the main point of this text. We can't always tell when something is right on matters of dispute. This is not about the Trinity. This is not about, is Jesus God? This is a matter that is very difficult to delve into. It's incredibly hard. But we do know that Paul loved the church. And so the question that I would ask you from this is not whether you would take a vow, not whether you would pay for somebody's trip to the mission field, not whether you would even put up with gossip. The question that I ask you today is, 
do you love the church? I mean capital C, church. I mean all capitals, L-O-V-E, the church. Do you love the church enough to give up your own rights? To give up what you think is important if you can? To give up what you think is best if you can? Do you love the church that much? Because if you do, it will bring you pain. People will fail you. You will be accused. There will be problems, but Jesus Christ will be glorified even as He is here in this text. Because you see, the model, the example of giving up our rights is Jesus, isn't it? He gave up all that was His and He was unjustly put to death because He loved the church. So the next time you are falsely accused or threatened or face difficulties because of the church, remember, God is making you more like Jesus. God is making you more like Jesus. We give up our rights that Jesus might be glorified, that His gospel might go forward, and that we might be sanctified, be ready to be a part of that great family of faith as we all gather together in glory. All of us like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You alone are glorious. We thank You, Lord, that You, by Your Spirit, empower us to give up our rights. That You might get the glory. That the Gospel might go forward. And that we might see Your Word take root in ourselves and others. Lord, be with us. Strengthen us by Your Word and Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.